Tonight is from Isaiah chapter 44. Actually, that's wrong, wrong. Beginning with chapter 44, Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 1. Hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, upright one, whom I have chosen. What a wonderful promise to start with. Wonderful promises throughout the book of Isaiah. Almost in every chapter, if not in every chapter, there's some nugget, some promise, some wonderful text that you can grasp a hold of. Uh, he says he formed us, he made us from the womb, he will help us, uh, we, he has chosen us, we don't have to fear. I mean, how much more do you need, right? Knowing that the almighty God has formed us, made us, created us, known us from the very start of our life, and even before that, he'll help us, we don't have to fear, he has chosen us. Wonderful, wonderful promises. Now, I heard a strange thing this week, um, kind of surprised me. Yeah, actually, weeks past and other times, uh, we talked about how uh, people who don't believe or who, or who believe that God's uh, law is done away with and the first part of the Bible, they'll call it the Old Testament, Old Covenant, fading away, old, outdated, that um, they shouldn't be able to quote from the first part of the Bible. They can't grab a hold of one of these promises and say, oh, that's a powerful promise, God, I'm not going to fear. Oh, thank you, God, that you created me. Oh, thank you, God, that you know me. Because, hey, that's old and that's done away with and fading away. Right? And, and so, but then today, or this week, I, I heard someone uh, who hadn't heard me preach those things. He, he said an interesting thing. He said, uh, someone was quoting, actually, from the book of Isaiah, one of the other wonderful promises. And, and he said, well, yeah, but technically... That only belongs to Israel, and so technically we, we shouldn't claim it. Uh, in principle we can, but technically we shouldn't. <laughs> so at least he's being consistent, although ridiculous. I mean, basically he's saying two-thirds of the Bible, or really more like three-fourths of the Bible, don't even apply to anyone except a very small fraction of the people on earth. And, um, and then what jurisdiction does he have to say that the other, the second part of the Bible, less one quarter of the Bible, applies to him. You know, if the book was written to the Corinthians, or the book was written to the Philippians, or the book was written to the Romans, then it's written to them. He can't claim that either, unless he's from there. You know, I mean, so, so I mean, you know, what's there for him? But at least, again, at least he was being consistent in that. But, uh, but he's wrong. We can claim God's promises, and we'll see that here in the next verse. So we don't have to fear. God will help us, even though, yes, it says, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, and he has formed Israel and Jacob. Then verse 3, it says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Well, so if you're thirsty, then you can declaim that. And floods on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So again, Jacob's offspring. Jacob's, uh, Jacob became Israel, Israel's offspring, Israel's descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. And Yeshua, you know, said, if, if anyone thirsts, come unto me and drink. Anyone thirsts, right? And Yeshua is a descendant through Jacob. Jacob became Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Messiah comes through that line. 
And if we are attached to him, we are a part of God's children. We are part of, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Once cut off, but now part of the commonwealth of God, added together, fulfilled together, brought in together. God's promises are sure, and they are for all who take hold of them. Anyone who is thirsty, anyone who senses their need, anyone who cries out to the Lord, who realizes our weakness, realize our emptiness without him, realizes that we are nothing without him, that we need him for everything, he will pour out his water upon us, floods in the dry ground, and we will spring up like gra- among the grass like willows. Willow trees will spring up. God will bless and give us his gifts, his spirit, and his abilities, and his talents, and use us as the willows. Verse 5. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, or some say on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. So theory is three different. I am the Lord's. Another says, I will call myself by the name of Jacob. I might not be of the name of Jacob, but I will call myself. I will choose to be adopted under, to come under and to come in to the fellowship of God, under God's children. And right on his hand, engraved upon the Messiah's hand, is our name. The Lord's. He is the Lord's. And we can have it engraved upon our hand too. I am the Lord's. Whatever your hand findeth to do, do with all your strength and do with all your might. Seal my law upon my disciples. And God's word says, seal it upon their foreheads and seal it upon their hands. Write these laws in Deuteronomy 6. Write these laws that I command you today upon your heart and upon your forehead and upon your hand. Scribe it on the hand. I am the Lord's. And I name myself by the name of Israel. Now, of course, if we take that text, someone takes that text, says, I am the name of Israel. And so Israel... Literal Israel is no longer Israel. I am now Israel. Well, that's replacement theology, and that is not what the text is saying here. But joining with the Israel of God. Joining with the Israel that God has formed, that God has created. The Israel, the overcomers with God. That's what the word Israel literally means. Overcomer with God. That's why God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Because he struggled with God wrestled with God, sensed his need, cried out for help, and God blessed him and made him an overcomer with God, a prince with God. So we can name ourselves by choice, choose to be born anew, born under the covenant of God, born under his banner, and thus inheritors of the same promises, God's everlasting promises. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. There is no God other than the Creator God, other than the King of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 
And his Redeemer, he is our Redeemer. He has redeemed us. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the first and the last. He is from the beginning, and he will be forever. The first one and the only one who will make it to the end. The everlasting God, the only true God. Yeshua applied this to himself too. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Aleph and the Tav. I am the A to the Z. I am the beginning and the end. I am all things. He is the Almighty One. The one true God. There's only one true God. There's no other beside Him. Besides the Lord God Almighty. The one from the very beginning. He is our God. And so if we fall under his banner, he is our king. He is the king of glory. He is our redeemer. If he has redeemed us, we have allowed him. He has paid the price. So he has paid the ransom for us. If we accept the payment that he has paid for us, if we accept his redemption, if we accept his deliverance, if we allow him to be king of our lives, if we allow him to rule in our lives, if we allow him to call the shots, if we allow his law to tell us what to do, his word, his Torah to tell us what to do, if we stop being the king, we surrender and realize we are thirsty in need of his help. Realize that he is the creator, not us. He needs to recreate in us. He needs to redeem me. I am lost. I've been sold out. I've been sold to the devil. I need to be redeemed. When we acknowledge that, confess that, accept his redemption, he is our redeemer. And he is our Lord and the Lord of all. And when he's the, our beginning and our end, first thoughts in the morning, last thoughts in the evening, when he's first in our lives, like the story Gloria read, got that check, first the tithe to the Lord then bills and other things, and then last. And that's first and foremost. If he's first in our activities, if we put him first in our decisions, what would the Lord have me to do? If we put him first, and is he the last consideration? What would God have me to do? And then at the end, thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for guiding me. Is he our first, the first one we cry out to? When we're sick or when we're in need? Or do we run to the doctor? Do we run to some other help? Do we run to some assistant? Do we call a friend? Who is our first? And who do we rem remember to thank in the last? And he is, is he all the way through? When he says first and last, it doesn't mean he's just bookends. It means he is the beginning and he needs to be all the way through the process to the end. Do we trust him throughout our struggles, and our needs. When things are good, as well as when things are rough. Do we praise him throughout it? See, in every aspect of our life, in our home life, at work or at school, as well as at services and with other believers, is he there throughout our day? Is he manifested while we drive and how we drive? How we talk, how we interact in our business interactions, when we go shopping, when some sales clerk or 
or someone in the store annoys us or cuts in front of us or, or messes things up or charges us wrong or makes a mistake? Is he there throughout the process? Is he in our hearts and in our minds? Is he our king? Does he rule over our words? Does he rule over our facial expressions? Does he rule over our attitudes? Is he our Lord? Is he our king? Has he redeemed us from the flesh? Has he redeemed us from our carnal nature? Has he redeemed us and taken us away from the anger and the bitterness and the resentment and the, and the short temper and the long temper? Has he delivered us? Has he set us free? Has he redeemed us? Have we allowed him? Have we accepted his power, his victory? If so, we can claim these promises because he is the promise giver. And he gives it to all who will accept. All who are overcomers with him. Verse 8. Do not fear, nor be afraid. He says this over and over again. So we don't have to be afraid. Have I not told you from that time? Have I not declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. He is the rock. He is the solid one. We can build our foundations upon. We can build our homes upon. We can build our lives upon. We can build our character upon. Unshakable. Though the storms come and the winds blow. On that solid rock. That does not get moved. When he is our king. And he is our Lord. When we put our trust in him. When we're filled with his spirit, we will not be moved. No matter what trials, no matter what problems, we won't have to fear. We will not fear. We will not yield. We will trust him. We will believe in him. We will stay the course. No matter if there's more bills than there is money, we will trust him, put him first, and then watch him bless. Trust him. Hold fast. And then he makes us his witnesses, as he works in our lives. That people like Jim are able to write stories like that. We become his witnesses as we put him first. And we can testify that God has been good, that God has been faithful, that God has held us fast, that God is true, that he is the everlasting one, and that he is our only God. He is the only one we go to. He is our go-to person. He's our go-to God. Verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? But yet, for centuries, and still today, people do that. Form little gods, and they themselves can testify this thing hasn't helped me. <laughs> this thing hasn't done anything. Verse 12 The blacksmith works in the cold with tongs, he fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, his strength fails, he drinks no water, and then he is faint. He's been working in the hot cold, he doesn't get water. He loses his strength over time, and he feels faint. Why? 
because he's human. But yet he's making him a god. Now isn't that something? Shouldn't the maker be more powerful than the god, than the thing that's made? But here when we make an idol, the man, the weak man, the, with failed frailties and, and weaknesses and needs of thirst and of hunger, is the one making the god? Well, how powerful can the god be? If the one making it gets thirsty, if the one making it gets hungry, well, then how strong can the God be? Can it be stronger than its maker? Can it be smarter than its maker? Ridiculous. And if he is hungry and is thirsty, what does he call out to his God to help him? Our God says, if you are thirsty, I will give you water in the desert. It will bloom like a willow tree. Here, the blacksmith's thirsty, and he's not going to talk to the stupid thing he just made. It's not going to be able to help him. He just made it. Kind of common sense. But amazing how many generations and how many people for centuries and centuries and still today in this world do that simple thing. The craftsman, he stretches out his ruler. He marks out with one with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass. And he makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in his house. Why are so many of the gods they make like a man? They're man-made. And so we're making it in our image. <laughs> so we make our own gods to be like us. Well, how good can they be then? How helpful can they be? We get thirsty, we get hungry, we make mistakes, and so we make a God like ourselves. We're in big trouble. But we have a God who is almighty, who is the king, who is the everlasting one, who has been around forever. He wasn't created at some point. Always been. And he made us originally in his image. That's powerful. That's wonderful. And he is redeeming us from our curse, from our running away, from our leaving him, from our rejecting of his creatorship. And he is recreating us back into his image. Wow, what a God. Where he wants to take us, what he wants to do with us. Make us like a willow. Plant us strong and secure, firm on the rock. Unmovable, unshakable. Without fear, what a God he is able to do in our lives. The almighty God is able to give us victory and strength and overall things in his image. That's what he wants to do for us. But we make our own little gods, and it can't help us. It can't lift us up to that height. It can't make us better than we are if we made it in our own image. Now we can laugh at the blacksmith and we can laugh at the carpenter who made these little idols or big idols or statues. Bow down to them, worship them, pray to them. And even though it's done, been done for centuries, probably almost since the beginning of time, and still done today in many parts of the world by various people groups, All humans, in one way or 
shape or form, do it also. Oh, we may not have a little figurine or a big figurine made like a man or a woman. We may have one with four wheels on it or ones that used to have antennas but now have cables sticking out the back of them or hooked to a dish or some other gods. Maybe our God has pictures on it like Abraham Lincoln and Benjamin Franklin and other little pictures, pyramids and other things on it. Who do we go to? Who is our first thought? Who is our last thought? In whom do we trust? Sometimes our gods are no further away than our mirror. We make ourselves our own god. Then we depend on ourselves. We depend on our own abilities. We depend on our own talents. We depend on our own craft. Depend on our own wisdom. Our own abilities to get us through this problem. To help us through this dry strait. Well, how much can we help ourselves? How powerful are we? If we get weak and we get tired and we have to go to sleep and we have to drink and we have to eat and we eventually die, well, how much help can we be? If we were born and will die, then how much help can we be to ourselves? And how much help can others be if they are who we run to in our time of need? Some of us depend on our spouse. Some of us depend on our parents. Some of us depend, depend on a friend. Go running to them, some, the banker or the loner or whoever bails us out. Some of us depend on our doctor. Some people make their doctors their God. Unbelievable. Can't change the doctor's appointment for anything. We'll sit there for hours waiting on the doctor. Or some legal advice, some lawyer, or some other authority that they think. Some people make their teachers their gods and these professors their gods. Or their politicians. Who gets the first of our money? Who gets the most of our money? Who gets the most of our attention? Who gets the most of our time? Who is our God? Some people put tons of money and tons of time into political campaigns for a human being who's going to deliver us, who's going to redeem us, who's going to feed us, who's going to put a chicken in every pot, who's going to pour out water rain upon us only to disappoint us once again. Who is our God? Who is our first? Who is our last? Not that it's wrong to vote. Not that it's wrong to go to a doctor. Not that it's wrong to go to a bank. Not that it's wrong to get legal advice. All those things are good and fine. But who do we go to first? 
Who do we go to last? Who do we t depend on through the process? Who has our loyalty? And if we had to choose between one or the other to give our funds to, like in the story today, who would be first? In whom do we trust? Is he our God? Or do we have our own little idols? We have our own man-made idols today as well. He cuts down trees, talking about the carpenter. He takes some of it to burn and warm himself. He kindles it and bakes bread. He makes a god and worships it. He burns half of it and eats meat and warms himself. The rest he makes into a god, a god, a carved image. He falls down and prays to it. Deliver me, for you are my god. Kind of ridiculous, huh? They do not know nor understand, for their eyes are shut. They cannot see, and their hearts that they can't understand. Verse 19, none consider, there is, none, none under, there is no understanding to say, I burned half, I baked bread, shall I make the rest an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Pretty common sense, anyone who has reasoning. If half of it was good enough to throw in the fire... So I can bake my bread, so I can warm myself. Well, then what makes the other half so holy that I can pray to it that it's going to help me? Amazing. You say, how can they not see that? How can centuries and centuries, culture upon culture and culture upon culture, they not see that? Because they do not know, because their eyes are shut, they cannot see. We get deluded. We get off track when we don't have our eyes fixed on God. The everlasting God, the creator God, the true God. We get deluded with a satanic spell that keeps us from being able to see what is so plain, what is so clear, what is such common sense. I heard one people, person say, uh, people don't own boats. Boats own them. So much time goes into it, so much money goes into it, it's just constant, nonstop. I mean, I don't know firsthand, I don't have a boat, but. But then it becomes our God. If it owns us, whether the boat, the car, the house, sometimes our job is our God, our career, our status. We don't feel like we're anything if we don't have a title. Our status is in God. Our worth is in God. In what he says about us. That I created you from your mother's womb. That I know you from everlasting. That I love you. That you are mine. That is where our worth is. Our worth is not in our careers. Our worth is not in our positions. Our worth is not in our status. Our value is in God. Otherwise, if it's in any of those other things, they become our gods. That's where we have workaholism. It becomes our God. 
God should be our first and throughout, our foremost. Otherwise, we're blinded. Sometimes we don't see it. So we need to stop back, as we read in the other, uh, other chapter, Isaiah, rest in quietness, stillness, hear God's still small voice, to be redeemed from the blindness that we may see the reality that's around us. Verse 20, he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He's holding on to the idol, and he can't say, this stupid little thing can't help me. Amazing in our educated society, People have lucky charms. Whether rabbit's foot and other kind of silly things. Or maybe it's the horoscope. Read the horoscope. It's going to tell me what, you know, what a stupid thing. Amazing newspapers and people read that thing. I mean, everyone born on that day is going to have the same exact thing happen to them? I mean, that's ridiculous. Just look at two twins. The same things don't happen to them throughout their lives. I mean, how much common sense does that take to see that? But... We're blinded. And we still look at those things. Or, oh my, you know, things become so precious. Oh, this was my grandmother's, my grandfather's, whatever, and I don't go anywhere without it. As if it keeps us. People turn their mezuzahs into lucky charms. As if walking in the house and having the mezuzah on the door, that that's what protects us. It's to remind us of God's law. It's not a lucky charm. It's a piece of metal or wood or whatever. We don't say certain prayers because the prayers themselves are what heal us. It's God who heals us. It's God who helps us. I remember when my grandmother was sick. Someone came and visited her and said, did you say the Misha Barak? Just as we said tonight. She believed in the Misha Barak. I should have said, she didn't believe in the Misha Barak. She believed in God. <laughs> Who hears our prayers. It's not just the saying of rogue things over and over again that God wants. We can make religiosity our God. We can make the religion our God. We can make the congregation our God. People have made their religious leaders their gods. God is God. There is none other. He is the Lord. He is the Almighty One. There are people who called me for counseling before they prayed. So who did they put first? God needs to be the beginning and the end. It's okay to get counseling and speak to a human along the way, but God needs to be in it all. He is God. Remember these, O Jacob, verse 21, O Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. He is God. He formed us. We didn't form him. 
Well, some people form their own gods. They come up with their own theories and their own theology. Well, they may use the Bible, take a little verse here, a little verse here, and then they fashion their God according to their own dictates and according to their own likes, according to what they want to do. But God formed us. We need to allow God to be God. We need to allow God's word, his whole word, to tell us what is right, what is wrong, what he is like, what he wants to do in our lives. Because he formed us. He made us. And if he made us, then we're precious in his eyes. We are special to him. How could he forget you? If he made you. He created you. Right? We have some artists. Right? Jim, he knows the pictures he painted. Those who crafted things. Fred's made things. He knows the things that he made. Don't forget those things. You put time into, energy into. Some writers, people, they know what they wrote. You know what they created? And it has a little special meaning to us because we created it by God's power, by God's gifts that he gave us. Well, God created us. He formed us. He formed you. Thus, you are special to him. He knows you. And he won't lay you down. He won't forget you. You will not be forgotten by him. That's a wonderful promise. So many wonderful promises. You ever feeling alone? You ever feeling down? Just claim that promise. God, you won't forget me. You haven't forgotten me. Others might have forgotten you. People might forget your name. People might forget your face. People might fire you. People might leave you. People might divorce you. People might reject you. You might have made that star play and everybody else forgot it. Everyone else thought it was someone else. They remember it somehow. And now, no, it was me. I did that. I hit that ball. I caught that ball. No, it couldn't have been you. What was your name anyway? Doesn't matter. God doesn't forget us. Our worth is not in what others say. Our worth is in God. And he will not forget us. He remembers us. And he loves us. Because he formed us. And he's reforming us. And he's recreating us. We are his servants. Verse 22, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. And like a cloud your sins return to me for I have redeemed you. He has forgiven us. He's blotted out our sins. He's washed away our transgressions. The Messiah has taken them, taken them upon himself, he has died for them. He's paid the penalty for them. Thus he has paid the price. He, thus he has redeemed us. It's interesting, it doesn't say, return to me and I will redeem you. It says, return to me for I have redeemed you. It doesn't say, return to me and I will forgive your sins. Return to me and I will blot out your transgressions. He says, I have already blotted out your transgressions. 
I have already forgiven your sins. I have already redeemed you. Thus return to me. Come back to me. God is already, he's the beginning and the end. We don't start the process with God. God has started the process for us. He has redeemed us. And he draws us back to himself. Now we have free choice and we can reject that and we can say, no, I don't want it. Okay, thank you that you redeemed me. Thank you that you paid the price. Thank you that you've forgiven me, but I don't care. I want to continue to do what I'm doing and I don't want to change. And they'll say, okay. And my blood has been for naught. The price that I paid has been for nothing. And you will bear your own punishment. He gives us that free choice but he's already redeemed us. Thus, there should be nothing that should hold us back from returning to him, from coming to him and allowing him to recreate us and reform us. And because he has forgiven us, because he has blotted out our transgression, because he has redeemed us, verse 23, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth, Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. He is the everlasting God. He is the Redeemer. Several times through this chapter, I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you. He has redeemed us. He has bought us. Thus we are his. We can return to him. We can come back to him. Yes, Satan has stolen us away as a people, from Adam and Eve on down, but he has paid the price. Thus he has bought us back. Thus we are his. Twice over. He created us, he formed us, and he bought us. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, both creator and Redeemer, I am the Lord who makes all things. I stretch out the heavens all alone. I spread abroad the earth by myself. I frustrate the signs of the babblers, drive diviners mad. I turn wise men backwards and make their knowledge foolishness. He is the Redeemer. If there's some babbler in your life causing problems. If there's some diviner causing you grief. There's some so-called wise men trying to manipulate you or coerce you or trick you or deceive you. He'll frustrate them. He will drive them mad. He will drive them back at the name of the mighty one of Israel, the Lord God Almighty. Trust in him. He formed us. He'll take care of us. He loves us. He's made all things. He certainly can help us in our time of need. In verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will rise up her waste places. This is a very interesting text in Isaiah chapter 44 because 
Isaiah did not live to see Jerusalem taken and Jerusalem taken down and Jerusalem desolate. So he's prophesying here that it would become desolate after his time, but that it would be inhabited again and that it would be built again and that God would raise up its waste places. And just as God knew that and did that, God knows your future. God knows my future. And he's promised to work in our lives. He has started it and he will end it. He will take us through and see us through as we trust in him. If we have any gods in our lives, anything that we put before God, if we're no better than the blacksmith or the craftsman who makes these little things, we do not put our total trust in God. He's not first in every aspect of our lives. As we pray together, let's surrender and ask God to remove the gods out of our lives and to draw us back to himself. If you haven't accepted his redemption, if you haven't accepted his forgiveness, you haven't accepted his power to blot out the sins that he's blotted out, to blot them out of your life and out of your character. Accept the work that he's already done. And let it become a reality in your life. If there's any area that you're thirsty, cry out to him. If there's any area that you have need, cry out to him. Call upon him. If there's any area you're afraid, he says, fear not. Surrender all your fears, surrender all your worries, surrender all your cares. Surrender all the insecurities. He will not forget you. Surrender all the feelings of rejection and loneliness. Trust in him. He is the mighty God. He forms you. He loves you. And he knows the plans that he has for you. Receive him into your heart and mind. Accept him as your word. And if you have not joined together at the commonwealth of Israel, not joined in heart and mind to the seed of Abraham, the child of Jacob, a son of the Messiah, a servant of God, I invite you today to enter into covenant with God. Receive of his covenant. Let him write your name upon his hands and write upon your hands, the Lord. I am a child of God, child of the Holy One, child of the King. And allow him to bring your life into harmony with his word, with his Torah, with his scripture with his character, with his life, with himself. So we pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we are thankful that you love us with an everlasting love. We're thankful that you first redeemed us. We're thankful that you first blotted out our sins. Thankful that you paved the way for us to return to you. Lord, break the blinders off our minds and off our eyes at the deceptions that Satan has ensnared us with. Open our eyes that we may see the gods in our lives. Open our eyes that we may see the areas 
that we put other things or other people or ourselves before you. Convict us. Give us the gift of repentance. And turn us to you. May we have no other gods before you. May we call out to no one but you in our time of need for our help, for our strength. Give us our sense of our thirst so you can pour out your water upon us and redeem us. Take us into your heart and mind. Wrap us in your arms. And be our first and be our last. Be our first thought throughout our day and our last thought. Be first with every aspect of our life. Our talents, our means. Be our king. And create us as your servants. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.